Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another fantastic episode of Adventures in DevOps. I am Nell Shamrell Harrington, one of your hosts, also Principal Engineer at Chef. And here with me today are my co-hosts, Mr. Chuck. Chuck, how are you doing today? Uh, I got three hours of sleep last night, so if I get really quiet, I'm sorry. (laughs) Other than that, I'm great. And we're remote, so I can't throw something at you know, uh, if right? you start to fall asleep. Uh, we should we get just out set the up, air horn. <laughs> yeah, get out the air horn, set up some sort of Arduino thing that that chucks things. I I need this. Uh, that is my next project. And with us also is Scott. Scott, how are you doing today? Hey guys, uh, Scott Nixon from uh, Cloud Mechanics here. Uh, just uh, excited to be here and talk about logging with our with our guest. Awesome. Well, as you mentioned, we have a guest this week, uh, Grant. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, uh, my name is Grant Schofield. I am the Director of Infrastructure at Humio, a log aggregation company. Um, We've been around for a few years, but I think this last year we've made a bit of a a big push into the U.S. especially um, in terms of marketing and and various things. So uh, while I run the infrastructure team uh, and I do wear a lot of other hats here as well, from developer advocacy to pre-sales, post-sales, et cetera. Sounds like a startup. Yep. (laughs) Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. Awesome. Boy, well, logging, that's my favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that. I think uh, I joined earlier this year in January, and I go back with some of the founders um, from the Erlang world, actually. Uh, and uh, I think before I joined, the idea of working in a logging company was probably not one of the most interesting things. Um, but the founders definitely got me really excited about it uh, in January, and I was uh, lucky to be able to join and be part of this really, really awesome team. I think it's funny. People can't see you. We can. Mm-hmm. But you said you work for a logging company and you have your lumberjack beard. So, Yes. Uh, you know, it's funny about, you know, uh, when, see, a few years ago, a uh, startup I worked for got acquired and that's how I ended up in the Bay Area. But I was, it was, I went off on a Girl Scout camp out trip for like three weeks in the mountains of Colorado and stopped shaving. And yeah, and I stopped then, and then I was about to shave it off before I got acquired. And my CEO was like, "No, it brings you credibility." So, so I'll figure out something else for my uh, credibility. Uh, awesome. Well, logging is a very interesting topic. I'm thinking back to my pure developer days when uh, logs were what I looked at when my application did something I didn't expect it to. Yeah, and I think everyone, um, I've been a Linux user for uh, well over 20 years now. I started my teenage years. Uh, and one of the first things you always end up doing, especially when, uh, you know, you know, you're learning is, uh, you know, start, you know, tail minus F something in var log, you know, the you know, syslog or messages or whatever. And that's, uh, that's kind of, you know, tail minus F, pipe to grep. And that's kind of the, the lingua franca and how a lot of developers interact with the logs. But the, the recent challenges and how we or changes in how we run systems, uh, I, th- I think, have made uh, you know, logging in and tailing logs you know 
it, people can't scale uh, and that doesn't scale. Uh, and so I think that's where we've seen products come along, of course, like Splunk um, being the most, you know, probably the most uh, popular and you know, arguably the first and then Elasticsearch and a whole lot of tools, uh, especially in the SaaS world, Logly, uh, Datadog's in that market, SumaLogic. So th there's, a, there's a ton of different people in, in the SaaS and in the on-prem market that are allowing us to really take advantage of being able to use logs to debug distributed systems uh, and much larger problems uh, and find interesting things, find that needle in the haystack, et cetera. So uh, that's one of the exciting things that we really are, are focused in on is not only giving you access to those logs from your hundreds of microservices, uh, but doing it at a really low latency and giving you a lot of power uh, in order to not only find what you're looking for, but also alert things like that. I, I will point out that this isn't necessarily a new problem. I mean, some aspects are new, but I remember the days when we had like four web servers behind a load balancer and the four web servers all ran the same app, but you know, the, the customer would make a request to the web server and get something back and then they'd work and then they'd make another request and it would hit a different server. And so it was hard to track what they had done based on the logs because there were four logs. And just on steroids, because you have all the microservices and everything else you're talking about. Yeah. And then people end up doing things like, oh, let's just put our logs on an NFS mount and then we're going to smash them all together. Um, I think you know, a lot of people, especially when people are using logs as the basis for, you know, for, uh, you know, all those tools, I, for, you know, I've, I can't even remember some of their names, but uh, they would essentially smash together the logs and then give you your user traffic and give you your unique IPs and things like that. So we're running Perl scripts or running bash scripts to smash all these logs together and, uh, and create business value out of them. Um, in a very, very low tech way. And I think one of the things that's powerful about logs, it's not just about developers and it's not just about, or engineers or things like that. There's a lot of business value in those logs. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of people have made a business of producing analytics based on those logs that give you insight to that customer, to that customer data. Um, and I think that's really when, when I talk about observability with people, um, I, I don't, I, you know, I am guilty. I have done talks where I talk about the pillars of observability. I plan to not do that anymore because I want people to get past these discussions about tools. And when we talk about observability, let's let's discuss empathy for the user. The the user doesn't care what your nine, what your uptime is. They don't care if it's ninety nine point nine percent. What they care is what their experience is. And so logs give us access to that user experience, even at that very you know. A lot of people discuss high cardinality with logs. So can I actually interact with my logs and gain value even if I'm looking at one user in one country, et cetera? Awesome. I, I like what you what you highlighted about uh, you know, dealing with logs is very, very technical. We slice them and dice them, and there's a lot of great services like yours that, that do that for you now. But ultimately, it's about surfacing the signal in the noise, and that signal is what a business value can this can these logs tell us? I'm remembering the first time I had a a, a service go down, and it was because um, I had kept so many logs without rotating them that uh, my they 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 filled up my entire disk space or every every spare bit of disk disk space. So it's so nice that there's external tools now that that take and munge and parse that. You know, it's it's sort of inevitable, especially in. Um, you know, this distributed, in particular, I think Kubernetes and the containerized world necessitates the need for something. Um, and a lot of people are using 
either a SaaS service or running their Elastic or you know, we're a SaaS service or we're on-prem, which makes us a little bit different from a lot of the other, a lot of the other vendors. Um, and it's, I think that the the challenge is, is that I think in a lot of cases we've we've gotten to this position where you know I, I was in this position at my last company I was running the infrastructure team there and um, you know we people like, I'm amazed at what people will log sometimes so you know they'll they'll throw their Node.js app in trace in trace mode and they will literally create hundreds of gigabytes of logs That's a lot. In a day. yeah it's um you know and that and that's just because they made a mistake and so there's this interesting trade off i think that when you're when you're running a fairly significantly sized infrastructure let's say you know when you're paying amazon hundreds of thousands of dollars a month you end up you know, a significant portion of that bill, tens of thousands of dollars can just be you know, running the systems to capture your logs, be that CloudWatch logs or the Elasticsearch service or something like ours. Uh, it's a significant investment. And the one thing that you know, I find that was really interesting that I learned at my last job is, you know, and distributed tracing kind of falls into this is that we're all hyped about these tools, but you know, we deploy distributed tracing, use Zipkin, we're storing, you know, tens of gigabytes a day, paying, you know, thousands of dollars a month and no one looked at it. Um, you know, so just because you build and have these things, if the tools are hard or hard to interact with, or um, I have that data somewhere else, then, you know, I, I might, as an infrastructure and operations people and DevOps people, we think this is a, you know, this is going to change everyone's lives and then no one looked at the data. So I think that's the the one thing that we're trying to bring people, um, especially is, is that it's not just about, you know, a lot of people use logs as a last resort. They're for, you know, their first stop is they're using an APM tool, um, you know, like a new relic or, or an Instana. Um, they're using an APM tool and that's where they stop first as an engineer. But that doesn't always give you the whole story. And I think as much as I've, I actually wasn't a big fan of logging in my last job. Uh, we, uh, until we started doing it and doing it well, mostly because I think a lot of engineers uh, think between APM and metrics that that gives them an, enough of the story. But when you have a significantly complex and large systems, you really need the logs to provide that additional context in order for you not only to debug, but also um, find, out, find other issues. And one of the things that I'm a big proponent for is um, having your logs uh, at the edge come into your logging system as well now. So we were, I worked at Vivo previously, the, the music video company. And so we had a fairly large uh, CDN presence. So we used CloudWatch and we used Fastly in particular, or I'm sorry, CloudFront and Fastly in particular. And when you use a CDN, you lose about 95% of your visibility to act to your actual users. And so unless you're post-processing those logs, putting them in your logging system to correlate with all your data, you actually don't know what's going on. And we learned so many interesting things about how bad Brazilian uh, dial-up ISPs are with DNS or uh, mobile providers with DNS. Oh, wow. um, because what we learned is that uh, there are several ISPs in Brazil where it was taking seven, 800 milliseconds to resolve uh, Vivo.com. And so, you know, we, it took, unless we, you know, and until we instrumented that end and actually started gathering that data and pushing it to ourselves, we never really knew that, that the experience was so bad. Um, so that's one of the things I like to you know, really talk about when we, when I discuss observability is it's not just about, you know, even your, your, the logs coming out of your application your microservices, it's also about the logs coming out of your load balancers, coming from your CDNs, 
um, and coming from these other things that you really need to look at that, you know, if, especially if you're using a CDN uh, in order to really understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm a little rambly on that one. No, no, that, that was really interesting. Um, Cause I was going to ask you specifically for kind of an example around like, how are you tying, like, what are some examples of you tying, you know, logs together with other systems to try to drive insights? So if you have other things that, that was really interesting, I think. Yeah, I think the C, the CDN one is that, you know, is I think that low hanging fruit that everyone, you know, that that's kind of your first step for us. Um, and, you know, not to talk about old stuff too much, but one of the great things that we did at Vivo as well was our player was instrumented. So when you hit play, we knew when you hit play, when you hit pause, when you scrub forward, you scrub back, uh, all your interactions with our, with our player gave us knowledge. And so those are things that we pushed back as well. One of the things that, uh, into, into our, you know, I guess, you know, our infrastructure, our data lakes and things like that. Um, and eventually you know, combined with other data gives you really good insights in particular, um, especially when you're doing online video, uh, how long does it take from when you hit play to when that video starts and tracking that metric and having that metric. So um, I'm a big proponent of putting, um, you know, observability type things on the edge all the way to the client if you can. Um, with respect to GDPR and other things that can be you know, somewhat difficult. Uh, but having that intelligence, um, and typically that's been in the realm of, I think, um, you know, New Relic Off or something like that, you know, uh, tools that you put in your browser to give you insights about your users. But when you start building them yourselves um, and putting, in, putting those, those tools together to get telemetry from your clients at the edge, it becomes very, very, very powerful. Um, in terms of not only just figuring out when there's a problem, like, oh, you know, Australia went off the map. We're not getting any more traffic from Australia. But what is the experience of that user in Australia? And how can we pick it apart? How can we learn not only to make the product better, but to make our infrastructure better as well? I like mm-hmm. the uh, the video analogies you're making. It's, it's bringing me back to my high school, college days of waiting for real player to buffer <laughs> uh, what I wanted to watch uh, the new whatever band of the month uh, video. Oh yeah, it's uh, I, I. It was a really great experience. I think not only, especially working in technology for a long time, but actually to work in a work at a consumer product that had to deal with you know big artists too. But if you know, I, I'm super into music, so uh, getting you know having that experience and uh, working in the media industry was really, really, really great. So. I mean, we're talking about this and you've mentioned some of the information that you can sort of, I guess, aggregate out of the the logs, but how do you, A, correlate log entries so that you know that it's all part of the same thread or request or set of actions that a user took or whatever? And the other question I have is, is, yeah, then how do you even know what you should be looking for in the logs? So I've... The what I learned when you implement distributed tracing in particular, um, and one of the problems with distributed tracing is it's not as valuable unless all of your microservices are implementing it. Um, and so there are tools, you know, of course, like Istio that make doing that a little bit easier when you're in Kubernetes, you know, perhaps you can get around that. But really just having a trace ID in all of your requests uh, is super valuable. And so even if you're not using a tracing product, as the requests flow through your system, so even when it starts at the CDN, uh, you uh, can assign it a UUID or assign something at your CDN level that again then gets passed to your load balancer. Your load balancer can log that header. That load balancer sends it to a microservice. So your users, your users' microservice, your users' microservice can log that 
uh, transaction ID as well. And having a nice UI around things like Jaeger is super valuable. But I, I, I found many of our users in particular just need that trace ID or that correlation ID, and, and that's all they need. They don't really care about the UI. They just throw in that correlation ID, sort things by time, and they see all the interactions as that user goes through their system. Um, so I think that you know our, ourselves personally, we're exploring. Um, there's been a lot of really interesting growth in the in that market, or I'm sorry, in that um, in the open tracing market. Now I guess it's open telemetry. Um, they change in open sense or you know, there's, there's a, I know they change names, things like that, but we're hoping to uh, integrate in with that technology a little bit better um, or that technology space a little bit better to make it easier for users to, to do that. Because right now, I think in many cases, I generally have multiple systems. I have my APM system. I have my log aggregation system. I have my metric system and I have my tracing system. So as a, as an operator, I'm forced to correlate all these things myself across all these disparate systems. And so we found working with customers is that, so Humio is a logging solution, but we can also do metrics as well. I mean, you can put metrics in Elasticsearch as well. Um, so a logging system can contain this data. And even if you're not using, even if you prefer using Grafana or using Prometheus and Grafana or using Influx, things like that, you know, Oh, great. But having the metrics in the logging system as well, right next to that data, along with your tracing data and your server logs, allows you to bring those three things together. So maybe it is, maybe it's an availability zone issue or a specific EC2 instance. So if I have my metrics and I have it next to my system logs and I show my system logs for, you know, these requests are taking longer on this server, having the metric data alongside that log, those that information about the request allows me to correlate these two things together, even by host name. So I find the bad requests and then I sort and then I group it by host name and oh, all my bad requests are on this host name or all my slow requests are on this host name. It's it's really a matter of how the the, the tool is built um, and how you interact with it. I think everyone has their own approach, be it Splunk, Elastic, or us. And that's really how that's that's how I attack the that's how I go about looking at the problem and put and putting things together. And we use Humio to run Humio. So this is something we actually do ourselves helps for a SaaS service. Over the last many years, we've had a ton of terrific people on JavaScript Jabber. And one thing that I realized over the last few years was that we were missing out on some of the real story there. So we would talk about the topic that they were experts in and help you keep up on what's going on in the JavaScript community. But I felt like we had these terrific people on there and we didn't really talk about who they were. So I pulled together a show called My JavaScript Story. And what we do is we interview the people that we've had on JavaScript Jabber or people just from the community. Maybe we'll have you on sometime. And we talk about how they got into programming, how they got into JavaScript, what they're working on, what they're well known for, and how they've developed their career. And some of the people are extremely well known and come from really interesting backgrounds. So if you're curious about how your JavaScript heroes got into JavaScript, then go check out my JavaScript story. You can find it at myjsstory.com. Uh, so Grant, I'm, I really like the idea of aggregating all your sources of information into uh, one place. Uh, what kinds of, kinds of insights do you see someone getting from that about how the application is working, uh, et cetera? I mean, let's say I'm an engineer and I want to t draw a conclusion from these uh, metrics and logs and take it to my executives. What kind of conclusions could I draw? Um, yeah, I think it's it's really as to where you want to focus your efforts on the tooling. So in many cases, there are um, there are other ways to get this data. Um, 
So it depends on your it depends on your environment. What I find is that in many cases there are I have not been in a place yet, no matter how ahead of the curve they are, where they don't have legacy applications. And so maybe they have some applications that don't send structured logs and things like that. And um, those legacy applications are generally really important. That's why we keep running them. So having so having I think that being able to combine having a complete view across all of your systems from your legacy systems to your new microservices to your CDN is really powerful. Even for as an engineer, I think when you're developing a service, having that really tight feedback loop is important. Um, one of the things that uh, we do that's a little bit different, and I haven't discussed this um, directly yet, but I'd like to a little bit later, is the concept of index-free logging. So in many, in many systems, um, what you log when you're sending it to a Lucene-based Lucene system to do those searches, you're building up these fairly large indexes of data that we talked a little bit earlier about that some, some people might not even look at. And so what index-free logging gives you the capability to do is really search for a needle in that haystack. And when we're working with uh, new customers, um, people adopting a log aggregation solution for the first time don't necessarily even know. And so one of the powerful things that uh, I think that uh, an index-free approach brings you is the ability to search across all of your data for a string. And we use a lot of interesting tricks that you know, I'm happy to discuss about, you know, bloom filters and, and how we make this so efficient. Um, but you can just take an IP address or you can just take a string, like a username, and search across all of your data. And when you're, you're an engineer and you don't know what you're looking for, I just know that, oh, this was the client's IP address. And just you know, starting there gives you a lot of insight because I can see all of the interactions I've had with that IP address. Uh, and as an engineer, even if it's not my application, being able to see the flow of a user's request through the system might help me find, you know, figure out where, oh, well, you know, the, you know, it hit this service and it worked and then it hit this service and failed. Well, then that gives me the prompt to go and you know, see the interactions between those two systems. Interesting. So one of the things I was thinking a lot about um, re regarding kind of the tracing is like, how do you, you know, like I under typically tracing is done by sampling and it's sampling some subset of the amount of traffic or however you want to call that right mm -hmm. sessions. Um, and like, how is, is it, you know, or is this your system, the algorithms, whatever determining, you know, where, you know, like how to just, is it just trying to get an even sample across every possible iteration? I don't know. I guess I'm figuring, I'm struggling to even figure out how to ask the question. Sure. I think that there's, um, there's definitely a, a lot of discussion in the observability community of, about sampling and when do you sample and when do you don't. Um, and when you're at that really large scale, um, you know, that, you know, let's just say that when you're producing, you know, 10, 20 terabytes of logs a day, like some of our customers, maybe sampling is something you want to do, but I think it's that's generally become mostly about cost uh, in, in, in our view in the market. And the reason for that is, um, you know, logging, logging everything can be quite expensive, especially if you're indexing it, because if you send, you know, if you send a terabyte a day, that can quickly turn into five terabytes a day because I want to index everything. I have this, if it, you know, I, I want to look at that, you know, I'm going to want to look at that data. Or I think I'm going to want to look at that data. And so I think that 
when it, when we talk about sampling, in many cases, that I think that's been derived from mostly cost savings more than anything, um, or just data sizes. Mm-hmm. So we, because of our approach, um, we typically don't see our user sampling. If they, if they have been, that's something that they've had in place in the past already. Um, and I think that at least as an operator, my view is, is that sampling is, is, is a really good way, I think, to lessen that cost, but you need to have the flexibility to not sample things when you don't want to at the flip of a switch. Mm -hmm. So maybe the sample is showing me, oh, you know, this area of the world has higher latency. Um, But if I, 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 unless I had, unless I have the ability to, not sample for even, you know, a period of time, five, 10 minutes, I think sampling can, can be a little bit dangerous or not really show you all, you know, show you what's going on all the time. In particular, when we talk about latencies or when we talk about um, uh, percentiles and the 99.9th percentile, if you have uh, a million requests, your 99.9th percentile might be okay. Um, if I have a billion requests, not you know, I might be missing a huge amount of data if I'm not you know really paying attention to that 99.9 um, you know, uh, samples or that area. Um, and in many cases, a lot of the customers using our our system are forced to log everything for compliance reasons. Mm-hmm. And in many and in many cases, if you're in security or in finance in particular, you know, sampling is you know, not an option. Uh, in many in many of those cases. So it's, thank you for dropping the word compliance into the conversation because that was definitely a direction I wanted to go. So, you know, I, I guess this company was, the company you work for was founded in London. Is that right? No. Um, Are they European based? Well, I was just getting um, to the point of GDPR and like yeah. what that means for logging and, you know, because even a, an IP address is essentially personally identifiable information under GDPR. Yeah, uh, not to get into the too the too too many details, but we technically are London based. Uh, that's where our VC money kind of came from. Most of our engineering effort is uh, based in Aarhus, Denmark, which is the second largest city uh, in Denmark, kind of across across the way. Uh, that's where our largest engineering presence is, and that's where all of the founders reside. And then over the past year, we've grown, uh, particularly in the U.S. So uh, we have a San Francisco office where um, I work out of Seattle office as well, and then people distributed through the U.S. So with regards to um, uh, GDPR, uh, we actually had to, you know, add some features. Uh, so uh, the right for to get the right to forget. So if someone, we actually not to get too much into the technical nitty gritty, but we use an append only uh, system. So the data files that we write are uh, immutable. And so we had to add a feature in order to essentially read those uh, mutable files, remove that, stream them through, remove the data that you wanted to delete, and then write a new mutable file because of that, because of GDPR compliance. So I think GDPR is a challenge, especially when you talk about IP addresses um, and getting data from that. Uh, one thing that I will say is that in my experience, having worked at a place that had to worry about that last, um, many users don't care. <laughs> uh, and they they don't actually care about the GDPR and they click the buttons. They're like, you know, monitor me, and do, do whatever to me. And so I think that it's important that you have that ability and those tools 
but at the same time, I don't think it's been as uh, impactful to the operators and engineers writing these systems or running these systems as long as you give the users the ability to delete their data and you can prove that. Um, you know, I think that's the that part of the compliance. You know, I guess you know, Google got hit or Facebook got hit with some GDPR stuff recently as well. So there, there is that challenge as well. But uh, our tooling does give users that ability. Um, and one other thing I'll point out, which is kind of interesting about our system, several of our customers have different classes of data. So they, um, you know, they'll, they'll have secrets running around in their logs. And what we actually give people the ability to do when you send data to Humio, it's put in a repository and you can create a view, which is like a, you know, an RDBMS view. It's a, it's a view of several tables, several, you know, several different repositories. What we give end users the ability to do is actually filter out uh, individual fields or even given rows. So one of our customer has a, a hashtag secret. And if there's a hashtag secret, only four users are allowed to actually see that data. So we have to have role-based access control to allow even uh, event level editing. We can either obfuscate the data or just remove it completely. So that's something we're really sensitive to as a, as a European-based company. And in many cases, I think, and I'm, I'm surprised more companies haven't just gone this way, which is just implement it now. Even if you're not a nerd in the U.S., I suspect in the U.S. in the coming years, we'll have very, very similar you know, privacy laws with yeah. regards to GDPR. Yeah, California is trying to pass something very similar to GDPR right now. So I don't remember what it's called, but it's, you know. And then it'll go like... It'll go like emissions, you know, once California goes that way, everyone in the U.S. is going to go that way because, you know, such a big market here. The, the RBAC-based access fascinates me uh, because I've done some work with some customers who work in very controlled, uh, secret, top secret environments. And one of the problems is that uh, in order for us to look at their logs when they're having an issue, they have to get special permission to uh, send them to us or even to share them with us. And I'm just thinking of an application that theoretically served, you know, both cleared users and non-cleared users. And, you know, the logs theoretically would tell all this. I had never thought of RBAC access to log entries before. That's fascinating. Yeah, I think it's a company um, and not to... Well, I keep saying this, but I'll just talk about it. I think uh, we're on, we're an on-prem customer and or company and a SaaS company, and that's the opposite of how a lot of other people uh, launch their launch their systems or you know put a product like this into the market. And because we're we were primarily are primarily an on-premises business, that's where our larger larger customers are. If you're sending if you're making 50, 60 terabytes of logs a day, there's a lot of trade-offs about sending that over the internet. Um, just you know, your Amazon, you know, uh, egress bill will be, you know, tens of thousands of dollars um, in that case. So uh, I think that our customers really drove that uh, that push. Um, I can't, well, I, I, I won't mention the customers by name, but you can go look at our we website. Understand. And, and then, uh, and so some of those customers in particular have, um, you know, they have LDAP and they have SAML, they have multiple authentication ways in, um, and they needed really strict access control, you know, not only because when we're mixing engineers and operators, I think it becomes a necessity. You know, we have different organizations and you know, the support people uh, need to have different access than others. And, you know, uh, maybe we need, you know, 
one of the things that I've seen people do is actually give temporary access to support people. So a customer says, yeah, you can look at my data for, you know, and I can look at it for the next hour. And so you can change, you know, twiggle a little configuration things and allow users access to that data based on, a, you know, on a, on a time sensitive thing. And so just having having really robust access control, uh, role-based access control that works with LDAP and works with SAML you know, insert all the you know, open ID, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I think that's something that really has been beneficial to us and starting as an on-prem customer and having to worry about, you know, usually your first authentication thing you do is an LDAP because I'm sure everyone hates LDAP. <laughs> you know, if you know, having worked with it, it's, it can be really, really challenging. But because we did that first um, and implemented that first, it actually has been really good for us as a company being able to, uh, market this product. Hmm. So something else I want to touch on uh, this episode is you mentioned, I think it was something like, you know, index-free logging patterns or, you know, uh, can you, can you tell us more about that? That sounds really, really interesting. Sure. Um, the, in, in many cases, I think that we've um, worked in this industry and I've worked at a, I worked in a NoSQL company previously. I worked at Basho on React and, you know, there were there was a lot of interesting things going on in the world at that point when we talked about when people were doing databases for Mongo, Elastic, Couch, React, etc. I think that really turned a lot of the world on its head. And when uh, kind of the genesis of Humio starting was um, many of the founders used to work at a, a fairly large consulting firm in Europe called Trifork. Um, lots of big contracts, Java apps, iOS apps, things like that. Uh, and they were building a system for the Danish pharmacies, like I guess the pharmacy that uh, you have a you have a card and you walk into a pharmacist and that has all your Danish like healthcare information on it. You give it to the pharmacist, and so they needed a logging platform for that. And what they found was is that um, they ended up having to pay a lot uh, to store all of this data. That in general, was just used used for debugging because they were generating these really large indexes using other systems, other you know approaches that use you know Lucene or what have you. And so, what index free the index free approach? It's mostly about taking the CPU hits when you're actually searching for that data, as opposed to when you're receiving that data. So, what the pipeline looks like is. When you send data to Humio, we have various interfaces, the most popular one being our Elasticsearch compatible interface. But you send some data to Humio. What Humio is doing is it's not, it's parsing it. And so if you send JSON, uh, it's parsing it into you know, a key value representation. And then we store it on Kafka. And then um, we read that, we read that data off Kafka and create segment files and then store that on disk. So in this process, we're not you know, using a traditional indexing approach, but what we are doing is we're using technologies such as Bloom filters uh, against the data. So what that allows us the ability to do when you search for a string is we can exclude certain files that we know that string doesn't exist because we're generating Bloom filters based on that data. And so while we're essentially at the, when the data flows through the system, so you send it to us, we ingest it, and then it write it to Kafka. And then when we read it from Kafka, that's actually where our alerts and dashboards get their data from. And so even when you're sending 100 terabytes a day, our 99.9 .9 percentile in terms of when we 
the data hits our system and to when you can read it is less than a second, even at 100 terabytes a day. And what we found is most users are concerned about the now, concerned about the real time, uh, because that's where their alerts are coming from. So if you're ingesting this amount of data, or you know, let's say you're used to ingesting 10 terabytes a day and you have 20 terabytes a day coming in for a day, you're really dependent on, you know, you're going to need to scale up your systems in order to index this data so you can eventually read. And if you don't, then you're what you're essentially waiting for is you're waiting to get the data, waiting to index the data, waiting for something to wake up to query that data. And in many cases, that can take several minutes on a, on a, on a system this sort of scale. And so having these dashboards that as the data essentially, we turned it into a streaming problem. We turned logging into a streaming problem at the end of the day. So we're essentially just acting on these streams as the data flows through the system, running queries on these streams, aggregating data and alerting or updating dashboards. And then once the data is actually in disk, it becomes a distributed MapReduce problem. Like everyone else, we're going to tell you to run on NVMEs or run on SSDs <laughs> uh, to make these things fast. And because you're not indexing the data, you can actually fit all of the data uh, on NVMEs or SSDs and not have to deal with these trade-offs. So even though we are turning it into a distributed MapReduce problem, when you actually search for your data and search for these strings, we use all these other things to make uh, finding that data really, really quick. And as fast as your storage can go, we can, we can read it that fast. So you're even able to um, you know, query tens of terabytes a day feasibly in a few seconds. So that's kind of the the take on the index free approach, and some other some other folks taking a similar approach. Um, I think Loki would be one where you know they're not relying on index they're not relying on indexes. I don't think that they really allow you to search that data, but what they do allow you to do is find that data really quickly in the context that you need it. And that's um, and it works really well with your Prometheus and things like that. So Loki is another uh, another group taking kind of a similar approach to using you know not using your CPUs to index the data and using your CPUs to actually find the data later. A couple of years ago, I put out a survey asking people what topics they wanted us to cover on devchat.tv, and I got two overwhelming responses. One was from the JavaScript community. They wanted a React show. And the other one was from the Ruby community, and they wanted an Elixir show. So we started both. The React show, though, is React Roundup. And every week, we bring in people from the React community, and we have conversations with them about React, about the community, about open source, about what goes into React, how to build React apps, and what's going on and changing in the React community. So if you're looking to keep current on the current React ecosystem and what's going on in React, you definitely need to be checking out React Roundup. You can find it at reactroundup.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for that overview. That was really enlightening. Yeah, very cool. I know I feel smarter. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've always loved distributed systems, and uh, like I said earlier, when uh, when I when I knew that you know some of my old friends from the airline world working on that side, I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Um, but I'm, I I liked working in consumer consumer products. I didn't think I'd go work on you know DevOps or infrastructure uh, tooling. That was you know, I kind of I, I like really liked working in consumer things. Um, but just the technology and the approach was really, really unique. And the folks are so smart here um, that it's it's essentially a distributed systems problem. I love distributed systems as well. So it was, it was hard to pass up this opportunity. Nice. Fantastic. All right. Well, I think we may... Oh, go ahead, Chuck. So one more thing that I just want to throw out there. I mean, you've talked a bit about Humio and what it does and how it works. And, and I think you've actually given people enough information if they're crazy enough to go and try and pull all of these pieces together on their own that they, you know, 
could probably get a start on this. Um, but if they're looking at that and they're going, I don't want to build that. How do I get Humio? Where do they go? Sure. Um, you can go to humio.com uh, slash uh, our website just changed today for some big announcements. So I assume the link is, you can just go to humio.com um, and there's a getting started link there. Um, and so you can use our, you know, I think we, we have a trial and then I think you can send upwards of a few gig a day and that's free. So it's really easy to get up and started if you're already using Filebeat or metric beat, uh, log stash or something like that. You just point your point those tools at Humio and you're good to go. Um, and you can explore your data. If you want to experiment with uh, our Kubernetes installation, we're not quite there in terms of um, production reliability, but with a simple Helm chart, you can get up and running. Um, and that, you know, that Helm chart will install Zookeeper and Kafka for you and start up Humio for you as well. And you know, that, that, the basis of that technology is what we actually, we have a lot of partners um, that are coming online. One of those partners that we announced today was um, IBM and CloudPack. So they're offering a uh, various solutions for different industries that are on that are hybrid cloud. They're calling it so it's either on prem or in the cloud, and they're going to be talking a lot about that at uh, KubeCon next week. So not only are we going to have a booth at if, if you're at KubeCon, um, you know, and I don't know if this is coming out before KubeCon, um, but there will be. Uh, you know, we'll be there um, IBM will be announcing this. So we're gaining more and more partners that are using our technology as the basis for their logging solutions and their platforms. And so in the coming, you know, I would say in the next six months, uh, there'll be various people. IBM is uh, the first that we've announced that will give you the ability to use Humio built into their platform. And so that's going to be an easy way to do it in the future. Last thing I'll mention, which I think is the easiest way to get up and started is you can actually, if you go to our doc site, docs.humio.com, uh, you can go to installation and click on Docker, but running Humio can be as uh, easy as doing Docker run Humio slash Humio. We have a Docker container that has all the pieces you need built into it. You know, it's not going to scale to, to, you don't want to send it more than a few gigs of data, but it'll give you a taste for that just locally on your machine. If you don't want to use the cloud, can't use one of our partners, you can go that way as well and just get an experience uh, of running it. Yeah, I think KubeCon's next week and this should come out like Tuesday or Wednesday. So. Okay. Yeah, um, you know, I'll be there along with my infrastructure team um, discussing observability and we're introducing some interesting things over the next few months around app platforms. So if I'm running Kafka, I can install the Kafka app and have all that goodness uh, in dashboards and Humio. So there's... Um, there's a lot of interesting stuff that we're doing. We've, you know, uh, I think we're, we've grown, I was number 15, the company's at 60 now, and that's in less than, you know, 10 months. So there's a lot going on at Humio and we'll be introducing a lot of interesting things over the next year. Awesome. Cool. And Grant, if people want to find you on the internet, uh, where should they go? Uh, you know, my GitHub's not great, but I'm there under Schofield. Um, it's probably a bunch of old Ruby stuff. I don't know if I have that much exciting there in my GitHub under Schofield under, uh, Twitter is probably the best place. I'm Schofield on Twitter as well. Um, you know, I'm one of those lucky people that was, you know, knew those people before, uh, before it was big. And so I actually have my last name as my Twitter handle. So S-C-H-O-F-I-E-L-D. Cool. Awesome. Well, uh, we end each show with, uh, picks and, uh, I've got a couple that I want to mention today. The first is a tech focus pick, which is Windows Subsystem for Linux. It's fantastic. 
Uh, I've been playing more and more with it uh, lately and being able to run the Linux apps that I'm developing on Windows uh, is brilliant. Uh, I was a you know, developer purely on Mac for a long time. I still like Macs, but I cannot stand the keyboards. And I have been you know, just hoping for a viable alternative. I tried running Linux natively on my laptops, but Zoom does not play nicely with Linux and that's what we use for work. So Windows subsystem for Linux is pretty darn good. Uh, second pick, I saw the film Terminator Dark Fate over the weekend, and I am a big fan of the first two Terminator films. Terminator 2 is one of my absolute all-time favorite films. I was not that big on the sequels that came out after it. Uh, Dark Fate pre pretends the sequels after T2 did not happen. And what's great is they return back to the message of the future is not set. You can change it. Uh, and they bring it back to being Sarah Connor's story, which I think it always was. So highly recommend that if you've seen the first two Terminator films and like them, even if you were disillusioned by the follow-on ones, uh, Terminator Dark Fate is really good. Uh, Chuck, how about you? Yeah, that sounds awesome. I've been wanting to see it, but I just haven't gotten to it yet. Um, got a couple of picks. So the first one is a little bit self-serving. My book is going to be coming out on Amazon. I'm self-publishing it the same day or the day after this comes out. I can't remember if this comes out on Tuesday or Wednesday, but yeah, November 20th, you can go get the book. It's the Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. And uh, it basically gives you the alternative to sending your resume all over the place and hoping they get back to you. And basically shows you how to find the companies that'll work well for you getting to know the people at the company and then essentially getting referred in is, is the tactic there. So um, you can, you can go check that out. Um, I have some other things that are coming that we're launching at the same time, but that's kind of the big thing there. Uh, I have a couple of other picks. I've picked these on the other shows, but uh, I've just decided that uh, from now until Christmas, I'm going to pick Christmas movies and they're not the traditional Christmas movies like the Grinch or whatever that have come out over the last several years, I'm going to be picking more of the classical type Christmas movies. There are a ton of wonderful movies that were made before 1970 that you can go get. In other words, yes, they're older than I am. So uh, the first one that I'm going to pick, so the two today both have uh, James Stewart in them, Jimmy Stewart. Uh, the first one is It's a Wonderful Life. I think that one's uh, pretty self-explanatory. It is one of my all-time favorites, um, something that I always watched every year with my dad. Uh, last Christmas was our first Christmas without my dad. So yeah, it kind of has that sentimental feeling, right? The other one, um, okay, this one did come out after 1970. I apologize. Um, but it's a lesser known one. It's called Mr. Kruger's Christmas. And uh, anyway, he he uh, plays the role of an older building custodian. And, you know, and so he, you kind of watch him, you know, navigate through, you know, missing his wife and being lonely and, you know, so, some of the things like that, but it really, at least to me, highlights what Christmas is all about. Um, you know, because as you see him interact with people and daydream about different things, you realize that he has this deep love of Christmas and that he's lonely. And, you know, as, as he comes to interact with a, a little girl in particular, you realize that, yeah, it's that's what Christmas is all about, you know, besides Christ. It's about other people. It's about taking care of other people and seeing the humanity in other people. And uh, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's about an hour long, so it's not that long. But yeah, go check it out, Mr. Kruger's Christmas. This James Stewart, the guy from this one, The Wonderful Life. So, yep. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's nice. it's like forty years older, so he's he's considerably older in the in Mr. Kruger's Christmas. Yeah, it was made in nineteen eighty. 
yeah. Yeah. All right, Scott, well, I'll do my picks now uh, since I just kind of jumped in. So uh, I'll, I'll, add a, I'll add a Christmas movie to that. <laughs> uh, it's called The Ref by uh, Dennis Leary. This is 1994, so it's a little dated, but I, I think it's a fun little like dysfunctional family Christmas and Leary is, you know, very fun and charming. And, you know, I just think that's a, a great, great movie. So I, as usual, I'm going to do uh, book recommendations. Uh, so, you know, I tend to be somebody who is not super spiritual. I'm very science focused and stuff like that, but it came to me as a recommendation from a friend who's way more spiritual than I am. And it's uh, the untethered soul and, you know, it's just a lot about, about this idea that, um, you know, we should untether from like kind of these thoughts that are just kind of like passing through our mind that sometimes are negative, you know, negative self-talk type things. And that we just need to learn to just kind of like let those things pass through and try not to be so attached. Uh, it's kind of, it's a little on the shorter side at like six hours on an audiobook or something like that, six to seven. Um, I tried Eckhart Tolle and couldn't get into it. So, but I like this and this is Michael A. Singer, The Untethered Soul. And, um, you know, I felt like I had another, oh, so I have a, a movie kind of, or a documentary recommendation. It's the biggest little farm. It's just about like a, a farm, a 200 acre farm around the Los Angeles area where they kind of transform it over eight years. And it's kind of a charming little story or whatever, but, uh, kind of like an organic farm where they grow like several hundred different types of things on 200 acres. And they show how, like, if you do it, if you kind of like balance out the animals and the plants and the rotation and all this stuff, you can do things, you know, farm in a very, very different way. So that's, those are my picks. Awesome. That's uh, cool Grant. Stuff. Yeah, I guess I'll go uh, tech first. Um, I think unless you go to KubeCon, you don't understand how big the movement has become. I think last year in Seattle, they had 10,000 people. Uh, they, I think they expected to be like 15,000, 16,000 in San Diego next week. And so I feel good about uh, you know some of the choices I made three years ago to get on the Kubernetes wagon. I think that it's an even easier choice now, um, especially with all these built-in things that we have you know, from EKS and GKA have come a long way uh, in the past year and it makes it way easier to do. Uh, I'm super excited about Rust. I, um, you know, it's it's the the language that I'm probably reaching for when I'm trying to do new stuff. I think it's come a really long way. Um, lots of really, really cool people involved uh, and it seems like a really great community. Yeah, and so I'm excited about that. I can confirm, that. it is, Rust yeah. is fantastic, the community. Uh, yeah, and I wish I, you know, I wish I would have uh, been on, got, got on the train a little bit earlier. But um, you know, it's as someone who's enjoyed programming for over twenty years and uh, you know, worked at a company that used Lisp and things like that, uh, it's it's really nice to jump into a new language and you know be pretty productive. So that that's an exciting one, I guess. Uh, on on the other side, uh, Jeff Vandermeer has a new book coming out next month called Dead Astronauts, which is going to be really good. Jeff Vandermeer is the person you know brought. Uh, Annihilation, the movie, based on one of his books. Uh, he's kind of a friend of my wife, so that's exciting. Um, the other things I'll mention, uh, there's some uh, new punk albums out, uh, which I'll go ahead and throw out there. Uh, there's a woman-led band that used to be from Petaluma called Tsunami Bomb that put out a new record. I just got the, the LP yesterday uh, called Spine That Binds. It's really good. And then the other one, uh, there's a band from New York called Night Surf that just put out their first full-length album called uh, The End of the World with Night Surf. Uh, and it's a really, really good, um, you know, not too poppy, but not a hardcore punk either. So uh, I'm a punk guy, punk musician. So those are two albums I'm really excited about. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a great conversation. I uh, learned a lot myself about uh, logging, index-free logging, and the patterns of index-free logging. Uh, thank you, Chuck and Scott, for uh, joining me as always. Heck yeah. Yeah, baby. And to our fantastic <laughs> listeners, thank you for listening and have a wonderful week. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for having me. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.